So here we are at Lecture 8 today. Uh, to remind you, you have an assignment. You will have seen that I made a, let's see if we can get this a little better. Um, I made an announcement on Moodle um, and have extended the deadline date. So you have the weekend to do the assignment. Initially it was due this Friday and now it's due Monday, February the 5th. Um, and with respect to that, I have an office hour today that I'll talk to you a little bit about in a moment. But first, I'll tell you what we're actually going to do today. And um, it does look like quite a lot. It'll be a little bit of a quick re review. Because a lot of this, I think you'll probably find that some of the chemistry, we're going to skip this week from biology of the eyes over to the chemistry of the atom and the chemistry of surface color. Uh, and some of it will be familiar to you, some of it may not. But that is totally fine because we will decompose each of the pieces that you need to know in detail as we go along. So today, uh, just in light of your assignment, I'll do a, a quick couple of examples of scientific notation. I also sent out a uh, website that had some, some simple sort of scientific notation examples to help you through that. Um, and I know a lot of you are already familiar with scientific notation. Again, some of you may not be, um, but we'll just go over that quickly. So for those of you who are, please bear with us. And then we're just going to review the basic chemistry of the atom. I think it was back in lecture four, we talked about electrons and protons and neutrons and structure of the atom, specifically how colors change <coughs> because of different temperatures of atoms and because of energy interactions that have to do with an, an electron in an atom gaining or losing a photon. That's the sort of physics end of it. Today we're going to go into the chemistry end of how that sort of losing and gaining of electron actually happens. Um, this I'll talk to you about in a moment, but that's, this is the introduction to the chemistry of molecules, so two or more atoms put together. Uh, valence theory, electronegativity, that all has to do with how atoms physically bond, how they get together. And then we'll talk about something, uh, molecular energy, which uh, is a very, very important in the causes of color. And we'll see why. So to remind you, the office hour that I have today is from 12.30 to 1.30. Uh, hopefully the study sessions that your class reps were kind enough to, uh, to organize were helpful. I believe you had them last week and one yesterday. Um, we have a new class rep. So I would like to introduce our new class rep. We have the privilege of having three class reps, which is unusual. But our new uh, class rep is Ikra Woot. And if she wants to wave or say hi, she's right here. So Ikra, is, along with BJ and Kenneth, are your class reps. And you can speak to them about issues with the material. Uh, note, with today's office hour, it is a little tricky to find. If you know where the Dale building is, there's like that cafeteria area. You go basically to the other end of the building. And on your left is a glassed-in area that says Teaching Commons. So you go through that area. And there's a big reception desk. Directly behind that reception desk is a lounge with these big red York chairs. So I'll be sitting there and waiting for you 
at 12.30. Um, and if you have questions with assignment one, specifically I know a lot of you are concerned on how to draw the spectral curves of those five colors. You're welcome to come and we can walk through some kind of examples and what I'm looking for in those questions during this time. Okay. I think my feather earrings are bugging the microphone here. Okay, so uh, let's quickly do a review of scientific notation. Again, for those of you very familiar with this, a review doesn't hurt, so let's get started. Scientific notation, the only reason it's a convention, and really the only reason that we have for using it, is to express extremely small numbers in a compact way or extremely large numbers in a compact way. It comes in handy when you're dealing with microscopic quantities like atoms or uh, macroscopic quantities like galaxies and stars and nebulae. Because when you have constants, as you did in assignment one, like Planck's constant, which has a power of 10 to the minus 34, you don't want to sit there and write 34 or negative 34 zeros. So in terms of scientific notation, let's talk about the most common ways we use it. One of the most familiar ways is through distance prefixes. Distance is a really familiar unit to us. We see that in our everyday lives. So a distance of kilometers, a kilometer, if we take our basic unit of a meter, one kilometer is 1,000 meters. The prefix is kilo for 1,000. The same with centimeters. The prefix centi is 100. So there are 100 centimeters in one meter. And when we were talking about wavelengths of light, we use nanometers. Essentially a billionth of a meter. So the prefix is nano, which is to the nine. And there's, oh, sorry, this is supposed to say nanometers. A billion nanometers in one meter. Great. So how do we use this practically? As you can see, writing out all these distances with all of the zeros, it isn't very efficient, and it's time-consuming, and it looks long and ugly. So let's do it in a different way. Let's do it using bases and exponents to powers of 10. So what we have here is 10 squared, or 10 to the power of 2, where the 10 unit here is the base. Excuse me for a second. I'm going to take off this feather earring, because it keeps bumping into the mic. So I'll be, okay, there we go. It's a little bit better, right? Okay, so the scientific notation review. Here we go with the 10 is the base. A unit of 10. 10 gives us our powers of 10 in the decimal system. And the small number in the superscript is the exponent. All this means, now remember when we're doing this in Moodle, so when you're writing in your answers for your assignment, I typically use, when you're typing it in, the little arrow or the caret symbol, which is like shift 6. So typically that's used to mean exponent to the power of. So, for instance, 10 to the power of 2 would be 100. So there's two zeros. Okay, so what about these following ones? What would 1 times 10 to the power of 3 be? Remember, each power of 10 adds a zero to it. 
So if you had 1 multiplied by 10 to the 3, you'd have three zeros after the 1, so you have 1,000. A similar thing happens with any number times 10 to any exponent. So 2 by 10 to the 6 is going to be 2 with 6 zeros after it, so 2 million. And lastly, if you recall using powers, when you multiply two numbers together, the exponents of the numbers add together with the multiplication. So with 10, 10 is just 10 to the power of 1. Right? So this would be essentially 10 to the power of 1 times 10 to the power of 4. The exponents 1 and 4, 1 plus 4 would add to give you 5. And therefore you have 10 to the 5th with 5 zeros. So going back to this, let's do an example. Um, today we'll actually talk about the moon, the distance to the moon, because right now there's, well, it happened about half an hour ago. We were just half an hour late. But there's a really interesting celestial event going on today, which is three phenomena rolled into one. You'll still get a chance to see it a little bit tonight. But what we have today is a supermoon, so it's the moon at its closest approach to Earth. It's also what's called a blue moon. And for our understanding of color, it's not actually blue. It's just called a blue moon historically due to the Farmer's Almanac being the second full moon in a month, which is rare. Happens about every two and a half years or so. And finally, the moon tonight, along with being a super moon and a blue moon, is a blood moon. So it will look kind of red. And this is due to s the shadow and the configuration of how the Earth and Sun are aligned. And I'll show you what the configuration is in a second. But we have basically a total lunar eclipse tonight. We're not in the path of totality, so we won't, s we, half an hour ago was when things kind of happened. We wouldn't have seen the, to the total eclipse. We would have seen a little bit of it, but it was interesting to watch nonetheless and the moon was kind of cast with this red hue. Okay, so that's, that's a colorful moon for our, for our course. Blue moons, red moons. That's the first time it's been like this in over 150 years. And the next time it will be like this, I believe, is another 166 years from now. So it's rare that it lines up so nicely. Okay, all of that to go back to scientific notation. So thinking about the moon now, we can express the distance to that beautiful super blue blood moon in kilometers as 384,400 kilometers. So if we wanted to write that in traditional scientific notation convention, which is usually just one number before the decimal place and the rest of the numbers after the decimal place, times 10 to some power, you would have to write it as 3.84 times 10 to some power, right? So the way that we would do that, which power is it? Well, think about what you're doing to this particular number. If you're going to express it as a decimal, you're going to stick a decimal point right here. 
which means that if you were to multiply it by 10, you'd have to move five places over to the right to get the original number that you started with. And therefore, 384,000 kilometers, I missed the 400, but 384,000 kilometers is the same as riding 3.84 by 10 to the 5 kilometers. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's, uh, that's fine. So when we're going to express this in meters, always when you're doing conversions, any unit conversions, and you will have seen this in the first assignment, and you'll see this quite a lot, and even in your regular sort of daily routine, don't think about numbers. Think about units, and think about which unit is the bigger unit, and which unit is the smaller unit. If I'm going a kilometer, it's going to be way more centimeters in that one kilometer because it's a big unit. So if we're going to express this number here in meters, we have a number in kilometers that we are wanting to write in meters. This is a bigger unit, so kilometers is larger than a meter, going to a smaller unit. So ultimately that tells you in your mind you're going to have more zeros. You're going to have a greater quantity when you're doing this conversion. And so when you do this conversion, you know if it comes out to be smaller, there's something wrong. The physical quantities don't make sense. So the way you do it is you write your number in scientific notation in kilometers, and then you'd need a conversion factor. So basically you need to know how many meters in one kilometer, which is 1,000, 10 to the 3 meters per one kilometer. When you multiply that out, kilometers cancel and you get your unit. So you get 3.84 by 10 to the fifth by 10 to the 3 meters. This is a multiplication. So remember these numbers, the exponents add. So you get 5 plus 3, so you get 8. 3.84 by 10 to the 8 meters. Okay. That's, your, that's your answer. If you wanted to do it again in nanometers, well, this number, 3.84 by 10 to the 8th, just to show you how it would look, that's how it would look in if you wrote the whole thing out. Remember, nanometers are even smaller units, so it's going to be a huge number. If you have numbers in meters and you're converting to nanometers, there's many, many, 10 to the, a billion nanometers, basically, in a meter. So you shift things this way. These two numbers are the same, as I've just said, but you know that there's one nanometer is equal to 10 to the minus 9, or a billionth of a meter. So we do the same thing. We write out the number in scientific notation and the conversion factor. So we have meters needing to know nanometers in a meter. Again, this is where you use your units and don't mix up about which is bigger, which is smaller. In one meter, there's going to be way more nanometers, right? So there's going to be 10 to the ninth or a billion nanometers in one meter. These meters cancel out, and again, you're left with a multiplication where you have 3.84 by 10 to the eighth by 10 to the ninth, which is 8 plus 9 adding in the exponent to give you 3.84 
times 10 to the 17th nanometers. So that's the uh, sort of going from big to smaller units. So your quantities are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as you convert them to smaller units. What if we went the other way now? What about going from really small units to larger units? What is on this slide, and don't, don't need to worry about memorizing this, it's just an illust for illustrative purposes. Uh, these, this is a slide showing you the comparative sizes of different atomic nuclei. So you can think of the atomic radius. Remember we had in an atom, we had a nucleus where the protons and neutrons are and the electrons orbiting the proton and the neutron. So the distance from the center of that nucleus to the furthest electron orbiting the atom is considered its atomic radius. Now as you'd think, when we do try to understand what color we might see with light, we talk about nanometers. We know our visible range is 400 to 700 nanometers for colors. With atoms, a unit that we most commonly use, there's two. One is picometers, or 10 to the minus 12 meters. And the other one is angstroms. So when you see, you may see photographs of mineralogical specimen or small particles, and it will give you a length or a distance, a cross-section in angstroms. Don't let this confuse you. This is just a name for another version of meters. One angstrom, oops, one angstrom is equal to 10 to the minus 10 meters. So that's very close to light. Remember, light, we talk about nanometers, 10 to the minus 9. So an angstrom is just one power of 10 down from that. And what I'm showing you here, this is a layout of the periodic table. Those atomic radii we were looking at are measured very nicely and neatly in integer sort of fractional numbers of angstroms. So for instance, hydrogen, which you can barely see up here, is about 0.37 angstroms. So it's 0.37 by 10 to the minus 10 meters is your effective atomic radius of hydrogen. Don't worry too much about that. We'll go into that later when we talk about the chemistry. Just be aware that an angstrom is simply 10 to the minus 10 meters. Okay, so using that, let's use it to write a number that's, that's really in a small unit to sort of in a larger unit. Well, why don't we go from, say, angstroms to nanometers, since we've been talking about nanometers with light. So, for example, carbon, in the periodic table, carbon atom has an atomic radius of about, and please note when I use that symbol, the, the sort of tilde symbol, I just mean about or approximately. Okay, so, that has a radius of approximately 0.7 angstroms. Angstrom is written A with a little round sort of symbol at the top. 
So what is this going to be in nanometers? So I'm sure a lot of you can probably do it right away because you knowing that it's one sort of step of 10 down angstroms from nanometers, you could just basically multiply by 10, but let's do it fully, just for illustrative purposes again. So one angstrom, when you write it out, is one by 10 to the minus 10 meters, which means that if we have a decimal point here, for, for a negative exponent, you're going to have to move this decimal point further to the left of this number or move the number to the right of the decimal point. So we shift it down 10 spaces. And this is essentially what the number looks like in meters if you were to write it out. Okay, so one nanometer now. We already know that. It's one by 10 to the minus nine meters, which is not surprisingly gonna look the same as this with one less zero. Now, what do we have to do? Well, first, I mean, this is an easy problem. I know, like, this is a relatively easy problem when you remember your scientific notation. But if you get confused or mixed up or lost, just remember which way am I going. I'm taking angstroms, a smaller unit, and making it into a larger unit. So first, let's convert from angstroms to meters. Always take your unit, always convert it to meters to start. So we have the same thing as before. We have the number that we want converted multiplied by a conversion factor. So in the case of the carbon atomic radi radius, 0.7 angstroms multiplied by how many meters per angstrom in one angstrom. Again, those angstroms cancel and you get 0.7 by 10 to the minus 10 meters, which we knew. Great. So now let's rewrite this and fill this in as nanometers. If we're going to rewrite this, this is in our nice, perfect form of scientific notation that we like to have the number out front of the decimal. So we could write it in a different way. We'd say 7.0 times 10 to the something. What is that something? That's something because you're moving this point over here. You're moving the number out. It would be 7 by 10 to the minus 11 meters. Remember, we're moving this point over, so those two numbers are equivalent, just written in a different way. And finally, we can take this number or this number, it doesn't really matter which one, your, your choice, convert meters to nanometers. So I'm going to take this number, which is 0.7 by 10 to the minus 10 meters, by how many nanometers in one meter, 10 to the 9th nanometers in one meter, Again, our meters cancel, they, they cancel out, and you get 0.7 by 10 to the minus 1 nanometer, which is just 0.07. There. Uh, part of it is, I mean, it's, again, if you're familiar with it, that's wonderful. If you're not so familiar with it, you'll get used to it as you practice. So part of it is just doing the practice and the question. But I just wanted to give you a couple examples so that you would see how that works. Okay. 
So that was our scientific notation example. If it's still unclear, we can talk about it again more in the office hour if you would like to come and uh, get assistance with that. So this lunar event, this kind of auspicious falling at the time of the course. So we're going to switch gears here again and um, go from our scientific notation examples to the red and blue supermoon. And I'd like to show you about a three-minute video as about what is actually going on here. A supermoon's realism. Presented by Science at NASA. Mark your calendars. A series of three supermoons will appear on the celestial stage on December 3rd, 2017, January 1st, 2018, and January 31st, 2018. A supermoon is a moon that is full when it is also at or near its closest point in its orbit around Earth. Since the moon's orbit is elliptical, one side, apogee, it's about 30,000 miles, 50,000 kilometers, farther from Earth than the other, perigee. Nearby perigee full moons appear about 14% bigger and 30% brighter than full moons that occur near apogee in the moon's orbit. The supermoons are a great opportunity for people to start looking at the moon, not just once, but every chance they have, says Noah Petro, a research scientist from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. It's hard for our eyes to distinguish these small changes in size when the moon is high amidst the vastness of the night sky. But any time you catch a full moon as it rises or sets, while it's suspended low on the horizon, beaming through the silhouettes of trees or buildings, its apparent size might make you do a double take. You almost feel as though you could reach out, grab the glowing orb, and drop it into your coffee cup. Even more so if it's a supermoon. If you can catch only one episode of the Superman Trilogy, catch the third one. It will be extra special. First of all, the January 31st Superman will feature a total lunar eclipse with totality viewable from Western North America across the Pacific to Eastern Asia. The moon's orbit around our planet is tilted, so it usually falls above or below the shadow of the Earth. About twice each year, full moon lines up perfectly with the Earth and Sun, such that the Earth's shadow totally blocks the Sun's light, which would normally reflect off the moon. The lunar eclipse on January 31st will be visible during moonset. Folks in the eastern United States, where the eclipse will be partial, will have to get up in the morning to see it, notes Petro, but it's another great chance to watch the moon. The moon will lose its brightness and take on an eerie, fainter-than-normal glow from the scant sunlight that makes its way through Earth's atmosphere. Often cast in a reddish hue because of the way the atmosphere bends the light, totally eclipsed moons are sometimes called blood moons. We're seeing all the Earth's sunrises and sunsets at that moment, reflected from the surface of the moon, says Sarah Noble, a program scientist at NASA headquarters. The January 31st supermoon will also be the second full moon of the month. Some people call the second full moon in the month a blue moon. That makes it a super blue moon. Blue moons happen every two and a half years on average. With the total eclipse, it will be a royal spectacle indeed. A super blue blood moon. Sometimes the celestial rhythms sync up just right to wow us. 
include your calendar reminders. On the three dates mark, step out into the moonset or moonrise and look up for a trilogy of sky-watching trees. To learn more about the many wonders of the moon, go to moon.nasa.gov. For more of the sky-watching events to be found throughout the year, visit science.nasa.gov. So do take a look uh, tonight. Hopefully you'll see there are live feeds. We can actually take a look. I hope this will work. Let me, uh, let's see if this is working at the moment. We'll show us the moon right now from various uh, observatories in the world. Oh, there we go. It's live. This is, uh, it's 2.02 in Perth, Australia. And that's what we're looking at. No, sorry, it's... Ah, that was loud. Okay, so, uh, sorry, the 202, the time, the 1402 was universal time, not Perth time, but that was showing you the beautiful sort of orangey-red blood moon in Perth uh, as it appears right now. So go take a look at moonset. You're not going to see this sort of like blood red hue, but you will see that the moon appears larger than usual, especially as it's ascending on the horizon, because it's going through more of sort of surface area of the Earth's atmosphere. And as we talked about things like rainbows and diffraction and light and scattering, the scattering of how the light is scattered will give the moon an apparent color. So do take a look tonight at that. Okay, so moving on. We've so far talked about physics. We've talked about physiology and a little biology. And now we're going to start talking about chemistry. So where are we right now in our progression toward understanding color? Okay, let's look at where we're going to go, as opposed to where we are now. So you'll remember at the start of the course, uh, understanding color, I said, required three main pieces, which were basically physics, so light is the source of all colors, physiology, which was the human vision system, how the human brain and the eye perceive color, the eye being the collector of light, the brain being the processor of that light. So kind of with physics and physiology, there's more, of course, to go into, but we've covered a nice chunk of the basic material of physics and physiology. And today we're going to start into the chemistry and biology of color, surface colors specifically, pigments in nature. And from there, we're going to go on to talk about synthetic pigments like the dye I mentioned the last, the last time, which was Egyptian blue, the first synthetic pigment ever. We're going to talk about different dyeing techniques and artists using paints, pigments, and dyes, and how that all evolved. Given that I've checked these off and have a big blank on physics 
and uh, biology. Does this mean the rest of the course is just going to be chemistry and biology? No. There will be um, an interplay again of these topics coming back in, but for a little while we're going to concentrate on the chemistry. So let's start with that. One of the other things you remember from the start of the course is, I believe the first lecture I said, there essentially, in terms of understanding color, only 15 real physical causes of color. I'm not talking about perceptions or psychological sort of components of colors, 15 physical mechanisms that cause us to see color. That was beautifully documented in a paper in 1980, a popular article in Scientific American by a chemist and physicist, Kurt Nassau. Let's take a look at what those causes of color are. So this is Dr. Nassau. He, um, I believe, yeah, he passed away in 2010, but made incredible contributions to science. He has over seven book titles. If you're curious, you can look these up. If you look under our course resources section in Moodle, there is a section that directs you to library reserves. Some of the books, well, one of the books by um, NASA is in that course reserve. There are some other ones as well, mainly by scientists, but a couple by artists. So do take a look at those. But if you want to read the original article, it's a long article. And it's a complicated article. It really requires some knowledge of advanced uh, chemistry and advanced physics. Don't let that deter you. If you're interested, even just to sort of get an idea of the scope of it, check out the article here. But let's go on to what Kurt Nassau said these causes of color are. What are these 15? Okay, so this is a screenshot from a little summary inset of his actual paper. You can kind of read that, right? Vibrations and simple excitations, transitions involving ligand field effects. It goes, gives you all the colors, all the materials, all the gemstones. He was a mineral, mineral, mineralogist, so he was very much concentrated on gemstones and, and minerals. This is kind of like some of it looks initially like reading Greek. Let's, uh, let's simplify a little more. Well, that doesn't really help, right? This also looks like a foreign language, a lot of it. So far in this course, though, what have we done? Do we actually understand any of these things? So the 15 causes, number one, incandescence. We have talked about incandescence. You can think of incandescence when something gets so hot, it glows. So incandescence happens in an incandescent light bulb. The tungsten filament is heated up to a very high temperature, emits electrons, and the photons that are emitted are the light that you see with a certain color. So we do, we have talked about incandescence. Well, what about, what else? What about gas excitation? We have talked about gas excitation a bit. We've talked about Kirchhoff's laws of radiation, which I asked about on assignment one. So Kirchhoff's laws tells you, if you remember that in terms of generating color, 
color is essentially a property of light. And you can measure the color of something by looking at the light that it outputs. And you can look at that output of light through a spectrum. So remember with Kirchhoff's laws, there were three types of spectra. There were continuous spectra, which was all the rainbow of basically seven and more colors. There are absorption spectra, when gases actually absorb certain wavelengths of light. And then there are emission spectra, where the gases get excited and emit light at certain wavelengths, giving them a distinct color. So yes, we have talked about gas excitation. What else? We haven't really talked about this. Number three, we'll talk about today. Uh, the ligand field effects have to do with metals and semiconductors. We'll talk about that a little later on. But all of this, all of these things kind of go into the more complicated chemistry of the subject. Let's go to dispersive refraction. We have talked about that. Newton's experimentum crucis. You have a crystal, you direct light essentially through a small opening or a slit. The light is collimated or directed toward a prism which disperses or bends or breaks out the light, the white light, into each of its constituent colors by bending each wavelength a slightly different amount. So we do have dispersive refraction. That's good. We, color, we covered that. Scattering, we covered very, very superficially. We're going to cover scattering more. But scattering has to do with different things like it's when light scatters at different directions off of uh, molecules. And you get that in the atmosphere quite a lot. There's a couple different types of scattering. But you also get part of that gives the rainbow effect along with dispersion. We didn't talk about interference very much, but we will, because it's really, really interesting with how waves interfere and create beautiful patterns. So color, for instance, in translucent films, soap bubbles, that comes from interference of the light. That's for later on. So that, that, that's not bad, you know, given that we were not going to cover some really complicated stuff. Anyway, we got a few of them. If we take those 15 causes of color now and summarize them like that screenshot of his paper had into take the 15 and divide them into five different groups, this is essentially what we're left with. The main causes of color in the world can be summarized into these five sort of groups. And the first one is vibrations and excitations. We'll talk about this today. The next three all have to do with transitions. Again, the transitions do require a little bit more advanced chemistry and more advanced physics. So we'll talk about them on a conceptual level, but we're not going to go into the math. Uh, and then finally, the geometrical and physical properties, physical optics. So things like the actual prism that Newton used to disperse light. Geometrical configuration of whatever it is that may bend or change how we see the light. And that's really what understanding color is all about. 
So if you have an understanding of that, we can say, okay, that's it, course is over, but not yet. Let's, let's look uh, further into this. Today, we'll look at that chemistry component, those three areas that we're not going to do so much. Let's look at them conceptually. So the chemistry of surface colors. Does anybody recall how we initially defined light? So we defined light as incoming incident electromagnetic radiation coming onto a surface. Some is absorbed and some is reflected and bounced back to the collector of light, which would be in this case your eye. When we talk about surface colors, forgetting about, for the moment, the incoming light, the outcoming, outgoing light into your eye, we're going to talk about the interaction that actually happens on the physical surface with the atoms of the physical surface and the atoms of the light that give you a surface color cause. So in order to do that, we have to talk again about molecules. Uh, I'll direct you to lecture four. Lecture four was the sort of longer lecture where we showed the periodic table. And we talked about molecules as being a collection or a combination of two or more atoms. And when you remember that, you can have atoms of different elements, or you can have combinations of atoms of the same element. So this is a molecule. Molecules have really three important qualities that we want to talk about with respect to color. We want to talk about the types of bonds, how the molecules are connected together. Also, we want to talk about how those bonds in a big, long, complicated molecule, how they are connected, the combination of those bonds. And finally, all of this together adds up to color. We want to talk about the energy state of the molecule. Remember we talked about temperature, and we said temperature is related to color because temperature is a quantity or is a measurement of energy in any substance. Basically, the molecules in a hotter substance are vibrating faster, and what you have is more energy. So we're going to talk about energy states of molecules, how they are either vibrating or rotating slightly about the axis of the molecule. In terms of why we talk about each of these things, well, that relates directly to our applications and the colors that we see. These three properties of molecules give us our ability to make pigments, paints, and dyes. And all this together makes color. So we have before, as I said, we've looked at the causes of color as light and as perception by the eye. So the surface materials we see in everyday life, um, again, can be narrowed down into a few different causes, which have to do with the molecular properties in that surface and how the light is affecting it. So specifically, there's two things going on here. If we're talking about a surface color, which I just showed you in the previous slide, how the molecules are actually put together, the types of bonds, and how the energy states of these molecules can change 
over time. This all determines the color of a particular surface. Look at an example. So I've already said a molecule is a combination of two or more atoms. And here's one of the most common molecules and important molecules for life on the planet. It's a water molecule. It consists of two hydrogen atoms. So the H2, hydrogen, hydrogen, and an oxygen atom. And these water molecules are arranged in a very specific arrangement due to the properties of the elements that make up those atoms. And we'll see why in a moment. So just remember for now that an, a molecule is held together by special chemical bonds. To look at some interesting sites, there is a kind of a fun site called Molecule of the Month uh, where you can take a look and they have a different molecule every day and they talk about its discovery and different things. Um, and then there's a virtual museum online of minerals and molecules that you can also look at for more examples. I just showed the water one, but we're going to go back to this in a second. So with water, we're going to look at water today in all of those three sort of quantities we talked about, the bonds, uh, the type of bonds, how the bonds are connected, and the energy states. And we'll understand all of that and put that together and have color. For now, to give you sort of a preview of the interesting colors that we will be talking about, this is a beautiful art exhibit um, that was, well, you'll see the video. So this is, we will talk Hi. about some Do of these things. Do you want to learn how to draw amazing art? Would you like to learn how to draw how does science combine with art and creativity? We're here in Indianapolis, Indiana at the Indianapolis Museum of Art to check out two amazing exhibits that overview everything from x-ray technology to the history of paint. You gotta follow me and check this out. Dr. Gregory Smith, I am so excited to go in this exhibit. So tell me more about the chemistry of color. So you put this together. Uh, there's a group of us that put together a show that really tries to bring together art and science and talk about how the demands of artists and fashion and designers uh, drove scientists to make new discoveries in color and how these discoveries in science and chemistry, some of them serendipitous, ultimately led to materials that have benefited the arts. Whoa, this is going to be fascinating. Let's, can we go get started? Let's go. Let's do it. Follow us. So can you please just kind of take us through what are we looking at? And this is, is it a timeline? It's a timeline. We tell this as a chronology that starts here in the Neolithic period and will bring you right up to today. Wow. Okay, so I... I this got kind of this Lascaux picture going on here. What are we looking at? That's right. So we're starting at the very beginning with sort of prehistoric use of color. People have always wanted bright colors to try and represent their world or decorate their objects. So we're starting here at uh, going way back to 270,000 BC. And primarily in that time period, the colors are coming from rocks and minerals that would be ground up. So we're dealing with the iron earths, the ochres and umbers. So these are the uh, iron-rich clay materials that have colors like red and yellow, browns and greens. And then these would be dug up, crushed to create the pigments. And here you see an ancient Chinese vessel that has this deep maroon red pigment 
which is an iron oxide pigment. We have examples of the raw material here. You can see that the rocks on this side have that deep red color. These are hematite, so they're, they're loaded with iron oxides. And then just the addition of moisture, water, creates a different mineral, uh, gertite and limonite, which are the yellow ochres. And so even at those early time periods, people were doing chemistry. They found that if they took the yellow rock, they could roast it over a fire, drive off that moisture, and generate the red material. No. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, so what are we looking at now? Well, we're looking at ancient Egypt. So we've got an Egyptian mummy mask here. You can see that deep blue coloration of the mask. That's a pigment called Egyptian blue. So blue has always been one of those favorite colors of artists. And yet nature doesn't give you a lot of blue things to use as pigment. So early on, people were wanting to make blue pigments. And way back in 3000 BCE, the first purely synthetic artist material was Egyptian blue. You can see some examples of these lumps of Egyptian blue here that I made in the laboratory. Egyptian blue is made in a furnace, so the early chemist would have mixed together sand and embalming salts and chalk and a source of copper, either copper shavings or a copper mineral. This gets ground up, put into a furnace, cooked at this super high temperature for 10 hours, 100 hours, and what comes out are these blue lumps of a glassy frit called Egyptian blue. You can grind this up into pigment and then use it for decoration. And so we've got a video here which is actually taking you through that process of producing the pigment, grinding it up, and making an egg temper. So I see we got like a tapestry on this one, a lot of red. So what are we looking at here? This is a Baluchi rug, uh, nomadic people of uh, Afghanistan. And uh, we, we often think about where does color come from, and people will guess, you know, it's extracted from plants, or maybe it's ground up stones. But what if I told you that we get color from animals, that we can squeeze color from an animal? Sounds gross. <laughs> but this is an example. This is the dye, carmen, which is extracted from the cochineal insects. So this is a small beetle which infests cacti in the American Southwest and South America. And inside this bug is produced a deep red dye called carminic acid. And that gives us the red color of your Persian carpets and things of that sort. It's a very ancient coloring. And we've got a video here which shows how you can extract that from the bugs and use it to dye cloth, to dye uh, fibers for weaving. Oh, wow. I mean, that was my next question. Is who, who thought to squeeze? I mean, this bug could barely sit on the tip of my finger. So how did they ever figure out that, the power of that dye? Well, uh, you can simply, on a cactus, if you were to try to brush these things off, your hand would become stained with red as you damaged the insect. So I think this is a pretty clear instance of where it would become obvious that something special about this little bug. Okay, so what are we, what are we at here now? Well, well, if you thought the bug juice was unusual, what if I told you that you can get color from urine? Bizarre. <laughs> yes. So this is the pigment Indian yellow, which has uh, always been said to have been manufactured from cow urine. The cow's being fed a diet of exclusively mango leaves. No. So this urine would be dried down. You can see a ball of Indian yellow, a historic ball of Indian yellow. And here you see it being used in this Indian miniature painting, this manuscript. So all of the bright yellows, and in fact, even the green. The green is a mixture of Indian yellow and indigo, which is the dye that's in your blue jeans. Wow. 
This has an unusual property that under a black light, it glows this very bright yellow, intense yellow color. So it's very easy for us to identify it in our collection with something as simple as a black light. Tell me about this. This is a great painting by the artist Charles LaVault of Going to Market Brittany, and it highlights one of the colors that I really love, emerald green. So emerald green was discovered in 1814. It was actually an improvement on an earlier pigment from the late 1700s called Shayla's green. Shayla was a well-known chemist. For instance, he discovered oxygen and chlorine. He also made this brilliant green pigment, which was really beneficial because most of the greens that were available were not very strong or very durable. So unfortunately, his green was a mixture of copper and arsenic. And so it was... Arsenic's bad, right? <laughs> arsenic is a poison. And so even the improvements, the emerald green from 1814, still copper and arsenic. It gives you this very vivid green color. And what's interesting is because it's toxic, it actually had a second use. So if you were manufacturing this bright green pigment, you would sell out of one door to the artist, you would sell out of the other door to exterminators. And so you'll find it marketed as Paris green, as a poison for insects and rodents. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was very toxic. Very toxic. All right, so over here now, we got black paint. We're talking about black, the color black. And we're talking about a pigment called aniline black. And it's interesting because it's one of our first synthetic organic pigments. And being black is kind of important because historically, if you wanted something black, you really had two options. You burnt something, it could be as pedestrian as uh, burning lamp oil and getting soot black, or as exotic as burning elephant tusk and getting ivory black. Or, if you were dyeing cloth and you wanted it black, you had to dip it in multiple colors to get the black. Okay, that makes sense. So this was the first material manufactured in a laboratory, an organic pigment that produced a black color. And importantly, it was formed or synthesized in the fabric itself, which made it very wash fast and very durable. It could also be made into a pigment. Here you see an example of a contemporary Japanese woodblock print, and that very velvety black background is aniline black. But it's not over. We haven't found the perfect black at that point. Blacks continue to be created, including this example, Vanta Black, which was discovered in 2014. It's the blackest material on Earth. And it's made from vertically aligned carbon nanotubes. So it's very uh, high-tech space. above me. <laughs> wow. And what we're showing here is an example of a crumpled bit of aluminum that has been coated with this material. So from the sides, you can see that that's a bendy, foldy bit of aluminum. But when you look at it head on, it looks like a black square. You can't see its no. shape because it's absorbing all the light. It is, yeah. I mean, you think you've seen black as black, but that, yeah, I had no idea it was even curved. Yeah, exactly. And so its uses are in astronomy and defense and military sort of applications. There's, in fact, only one artist who is licensed to use this particular black pigment. Wow, so you have to have a license to use this. From the company that, that manufactures it, Surrey Systems. Wow, okay, that is amazing. Tell me what we're looking at in this really neat exhibit. Well, here we have a line of test tubes that have been filled with day-glow colors. So day-glows are these daylight fluorescent materials. So to kind of break that down, they are pigments that not only reflect light and give you color, but anything that they absorb, they will then re-emit as that same reflected color. So you get kind of a double punch of intensity, which yeah, makes them seem abnormally bright for the ambient light. 
Yeah, they almost look like they're, they're lit because they're that intense. They are light bulbs. They are glowing with their own intensity. Man, so how would an artist use these? What do you do with these? Well, we have some great examples here. We're not showing the actual artworks because unfortunately, day glow colors, especially historically, were sensitive to uh, light and they would fade over time. But these are examples of objects that are in our collection. The Keith Herring and the Stefano Castronovo painted Sprouse jacket. So you can see just how attention-grabbing those colors are, just how vivid they are. And of course, around town, uh, you're going to be familiar with day glow as the color of advertising. So it really catches people atten people's attention when these billboards are glowing or signs are glowing, product labels are glowing with that intensity. Yeah, I had yeah, no idea. So, they'll, so you literally, they, they grind this up then to make it into different applications? Well, they're unusual as pigments, too, because and unlike the minerals and the other things that we've been talking about, these are actually dyes that are impregnated into a piece of plastic, and then the sheet of plastic is ground up in a mill to form a fine powder. That's your pigment. Wow, wow. I had no idea that's where that came from. Okay, Dr. Greg, thank you so much for what you guys are doing at the museum here. Um, this exhibit is amazing. Thank you so much. It was great, great having you here. Hey, did you know that subscribing to our channel is one of the most epic things you can do? It's a little bit, a little bit long, but uh, we will talk about a lot of this stuff. Um, I find really interesting the black that he talks about, which is really like a space-age material. It absorbs so much light, you essentially cannot tell what material it's made out of. Uh, I wish I had a physical example of that that I could show you, but I do not have an example of that because that's really used in uh, sort of extremely high-tech uh, cases. I was thinking today of doing a demonstration, but I believe I would probably have to get a license to do it, but I was going to just do a simple demonstration with different kinds of powders and chemicals. And when you light certain powders, you may have done this or may have seen this demonstrated perhaps in high school. Certain chemical compounds, certain minerals burn distinctly different color flames. So you can produce green flames, blue flames, orange flames, kind of pinky red flames. Uh, we'll get into why that is uh, later on. Um, not all today, but later on. Okay. So before the break, we're just going to leave off remembering, putting together all of what we've talked about so far, that atoms and molecules, molecules being two or more atoms together, by analyzing, first of all, the types of bonds that these molecules have, secondly, combination of these different bonds in the molecules, and thirdly, the energy states of the molecules themselves Putting one, two, and three together gives us this physical property of color that we see. So we're going to take a break here. It is now 9.32, so we'll come back at 9.55. Okay, so we'll get started again, and this is where we left off, but um, 
What I'm going to do now is for assignment one, I'll review the spectral curve question and how to draw the spectral curves. Because I know it's a little bit confusing and you're kind of wondering what it is I'm after here. In assignment one, what I'm always really looking for you to demonstrate is your understanding of the concepts. So if your curve is off slightly, it's not like the exact, I mean, we, we're human beings, right? We're not going to get the exact amounts on the curve. It's just going to be a rough shape. So your TAs will mark with that in mind. Um, before I go over the curve question, another thing I'd like to say about assignment one is a lot of the questions are explanation questions. So like Kirchhoff's law, the relationship of temperature to color. Please do not just give me back my notes. Um, and, I, and I know it's very tempting to do that. Go, oh yeah, cut, cut and paste, drag the notes in there. There you go. Um, I mean, that is, you've probably gotten this lecture, extended lecture many times in your other courses, but that really does constitute plagiarism. Uh, do not copy and paste the notes verbatim. You will get uh, a mark of zero for that. Please explain things in your own words to give me an understanding that you have an understanding of all the concepts. That's what I'm after. Okay. So the spectral curve question. You have this website where you've got a color wheel and you're asked to take a screenshot of either a triadic or I think I, I said it I think it was a triadic, two kinds of color schemes. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Triadic or analogous color scheme, which would be like triangle on the color wheel or colors beside each other on the color wheel. So one of the two. And from this, when you select somewhere on the sliders, you'll get five squares of color. I'm just going to draw three for now. But you get each of your squares. And under each of your squares are values. And you use these values to calculate, to give you an idea of what the shape of the curve is going to look like. So for color one, let's call it color one. And please label your colors one, two, three, A, B, C, whatever, as long as I can see which color in your screenshot corresponds to which graph. So this is what happens in these sort of slider axes. So these three slider axes are a value from 0 to a total value of 255. In order from top to bottom, these values represent the amounts of red, green, and blue in your color. And finally, the last one, last slider, it doesn't, I believe, give you any value in terms of 255. It just shows you like a hexadecimal number for the color code of the color. But it gives you from sort of black on one end to 100% pure color, whatever the color is, pure, on the other end. 
This is equivalent sort of to a measure of value. When we talked about values from 0 to 10, with I believe 0 being white, 10 being black, where it was 10, 0 being black, 10 being white in the Munkle system in any case. So what you want to do when you're starting to draw these is start out with this number. I've included a file that gives you how to draw a sample axis for your spectral curve. So the axis will always consist of a y-axis, which is intensity, and that goes from 0% at the bottom to 100 at the top. And like we saw with all those spectral colors, the x-axis is just your different wavelengths of light. So the way I've drawn that axis, I've drawn from short wavelengths to long wavelengths. So from blue wavelengths, let's say, let's put the blue here. Blue, halfway is kind of green, red. So with blue, remember, we're looking at visible spectrum, at colors we can see. So the blue end of the spectrum, your graph will start at about 400 nanometers, being the lower limit of our perception, the shorter wavelength perception, and go to about 700 nanometers, which is the longer wavelength limit of our perception of visual light, pretty much. Green, as a rule, typically is about 550 nanometers. Okay, so you've put your markers where the blue, green, and red, because remember between each of them is that continuum of colors. So blue, green, and red. Okay, so now when we're going to look from this intensity, the black to 100%, Let's start by doing, by giving us a kind of a median value, like a resting value of the brightness of this color. Let's say that mm, we see the slider ends up like here. So it, it looks like, it doesn't give you a number, but based on the slider's position, estimate a percentage. So that's really close to 100%, maybe like 80% or so, divided into quarters makes it a little bit easier to tell the relative percentage. So let's say we estimate that it's 80% pure for the brightness. What does this tell us? Well, it doesn't mean that we're going to draw the line there completely because we've got different spectral curves. But let's just put, for now, start in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, all the way up to 100. It's not to scale, sorry. But at 80%, let's just draw a dotted line for now. That represents our background brightness of the color. Okay. So now if we're going to determine this shape of this curve, how it dips and uh, falls, the peaks, we look at the blue, green, and red, or the red, green, and blue and the way we do that is these numbers. So let's say your red is sitting square at the middle, which is like 50%. What you can do if you have some weird number in the other ones, like if your green is 
right there, and you're not quite sure how to estimate that, if it gives you a slider value of like 10, then you can calculate a percentage by saying the percentage is then 10 out of 255, all multiplied by 100%. And that will give you your relative percentage each color. So let's say you had 50% red, 5% uh, green, and let's say you had a high amount of blue, uh, 80% of blue. Before doing anything else, this is not going to be your final curve, but before doing anything else, let's take these percentages and translate them onto the graph with a sample point. For red, we had 50%. Where's the 50% mark? It's about here. Dropping down to red, so red is about 50%. So for now, we make a little mark there for now. With green, we have 5%, so it's about half of the 10, so it's about here. And with blue, we have 80%, which is about here. Okay, so now how do we connect this all up? So what we want to look at here, what's important is the relative intensities of the peaks. Green is really, really, really low at 5%. So you're really going to expect the spectral curve to dip quite a bit in the green region, whereas blue is very high, kind of around the background intensity, and red is kind of high. So you have to sort of make a judgment call as to how much of each color is in. You know for certain that green is going to go very close to the bottom. So what I would do is with this line, remember we had spectral curves and they trailed off. Some went to the bottom or black, and some kind of went to the middle grays. So what I would do is kind of start this curve around the light, background light level. So if we have 80%, and you know it dips down to green, does it do it suddenly or does it, do you think it does it suddenly or does it do it gradually? It can, sorry, it, it does it continuously, but you know that by the time you're here, right, you're going to get to that point. So you can gradually then, like you said, gradually connect it to that. And then this point, it's going to kind of go back up again, right? So if whether you think, and this red is about 50%, so it's quite gradual. So it might be even a more gradual than that. And then it may continue after the red, even though there's not much after the red, but say, let's say the really, really long values of red towards the infrared, you're going to essentially get back at some point to this basic median background level. And that is how you figure out your curve. So in, in other words, I mean, you can see this is just and it's what you think. This is just a, a whole bunch of blues, almost no green, 
and a bunch of red. Now, if it were brighter, let's say instead of 80%, it were 100%, it would just be that much steeper. It would look like something like this. Right. I mean, it will, so at 100% intensity, it would be, it won't be white. If, if the whole line, uh, if all the colors, if it's like a line, then it will be white. But if it's different colors, that will still be a certain color, just a very bright version of that color. Okay, any, any questions about that? Um, I, uh, can you email me and uh, let me know because it's, it should be open still, but I know for the submission it will be kind of, it will probably complain if you try and submit it again. So what I'd suggest you do is just email me. If you've already submitted, email me um, individually and send me your, your screenshot and stuff, your files directly in email and I'll attach that to you. Okay, so hopefully that's clear. If it's still kind of strange, please do come by at around tw uh, 12.30 and we can sort of go over this in, in more detail. Okay. So any questions before we, we forge ahead without my slide pointer? Okay, so then color, color and chemistry. Well, it's time I haven't asked you any questions yet with, uh, with iClicker. So get out your devices. And um, just a note, you'll notice sometimes you probably get notifications on your phone that say understanding color is going to start in 15 minutes. I think it's doing that because I'm starting an attendance poll. Um, please be aware that the attendance poll is not your participation mark. I'm just keeping that open as something that's there in case you have a malfunction in your device or whatever. And you know, sometimes you're sitting in class and you don't have time to answer or your device freezes up. Then you can come to me and say, well, check my attendance. I was here. I was participating, there's just a technical difficulty. So that's all that's for, that's not uh, your mark. All right, so first iClicker question of the day. This is a little while ago now, we're going at a quick pace. An ion is an atom that A has equal numbers of protons and electrons. B has different numbers of protons and, and neutrons. C has equal numbers of protons and neutrons, but has gained or lost electrons. Or D has no electrons. Okay. 
Okay, I'll give a couple more seconds. Okay. So, very good. The answer is C. So, an, an ion, you can think of an ion essentially as a, a charged atom. An ion you think of it as a negatively charged atom because electrons have negatively charged or have a negative charge. Uh, when you remove electrons, you have a cation or a positive ion. So ions are just basically charged atoms with different number of electrons with some missing or some gained. Okay. So that was, that's good. And here's a picture. If you because there's two, there's two sort of deviations from atoms that we have to remember. The first one are ions, and the second one are isotopes. So remember, ion, think of charge. Example of an ion is, for instance, six, this is carbon, six protons in the nucleus, six neutrons in the nucleus. The protons and neutron numbers are the same, but something is going on with the electrons. So when the atom is neutral in its normal elemental configuration, you have the six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons. And because the protons and the neutrons have opposite charges, the, the, the atom is neutral. Now, if you take away a proton, or you basically have more electrons than protons, that's what your cation is. So in, in, for instance, in your nucleus here, one proton is removed. You have five protons and six neutrons in the nucleus, and still the six electrons in the outer orbits, which means that this is a positively charged, the net charge is positive of this atom, of this ion. And in this particular diagram, it's now positively charged. So you have six protons in the nucleus, six neutrons, and five electrons. When you take away electrons, you take away negativity. It becomes more and more positive. So this is a positively charged atom. This is important to us in terms of, yes. Yes. So it, it, it'll be, because it's less protons, so it's becoming less positive and more and more negative, so it's negatively charged. Um, you can, but there's, it, it's complex, but yeah. I mean, typically the proton and the nucleus are one unit. Which you can take out protons and there are ways that that happens. So, and, and, and neutrons. Often it's the neutrons that are removed. And then that's going to be a different thing that we're going to go on and talk about. Okay. So, that's our ion. So now, moving right along then, next clicker question. We talked about the two I's of atom, ions and isotopes. So an isotope is an atom that what of the following? 
that has equal numbers of protons and electrons, that has different numbers of protons and neutrons, that has equal numbers of protons and neutrons, but has gained or lost electrons, or D has no electrons. Okay, I'll leave it a couple seconds more. Okay, I'm going to close this off. And B is the correct answer. Has different numbers of protons and nu neutrons. While I said you could think of an ion as having to do with charges, think of an isotope as having to do with molecular weights. Most of the mass of an atom is contained within, the, well, all of the mass of the atom really is contained within the nucleus. Uh, the nucleus consisting of the neutrons and the protons. So if you take away neutrons uh, and change the balance of protons and neutrons in the nucleus, you change the overall weight of the atom, the heaviness or the lightness. So for instance, when you hear about heavy water, it's because this is an isotope of water and you're changing the mass of the item by altering the content of the nucleus. So this is good for a bit. Let's move on there. So here's an example of an isotope. And I mean, one of the most famous sort of important isotope ideas is, is in um, sort of nuclear science. And talking about basically, this is three isotopes of hydrogen. When they had the H-bomb, each of these three sort of variations or isotopes of hydrogen were produced. So typically a hydrogen atom is one proton and one neutron in the nucleus and one electron orbiting it. But if you have the, uh, an isotope of hydrogen where the electron is basically removed and there's one proton and zero neutrons, you have something called protium. Deuterium is one proton with one neutron and tritium is one proton and two neutrons. And I think I mentioned tritium before in the um, sort of facility where they tested the first hydrogen bomb in the desert. It used to be you could go there and actually collect small fragment pieces of tritium glass that were left from the bomb blast. You can't do that anymore, I don't think, but some people have some of them. And that's tritium. So these are products, isotopes are products of radioactive decay. We're not going to get into radioactivity very much in this course, um, but it's important that you remember what an isotope is for color and when we're talking about molecular interactions. So let's review uh, what we talked about many eons ago in lecture four. Um, you'll remember most of it. Electrons have a negative electrical charge. Um, you'll see I denote it with an E minus. Protons have positive electron ch charge, sorry, positive electron, positive electrical charge, which is P plus. 
And neutrons are neutral, as the name suggests. They have no charge, and I'm calling them N. Do not get this N confused with the N that I talk about when I'm talking about orbitals. So when you have a nucleus of an atom, the electrons can orbit it in different orbitals. Those can be N equals 1, kind of like this. So here's the nucleus. Definitely not to scale. And you remember with our photon questions, what you have here is you have some, well, some P plus and some neutrons here. And then you have some electrons out here. And what's happening when we have light emitted at a different color is either the electrons are sort of hopping out to these levels and gaining or losing, absorbing or emitting a photon of a certain discrete energy level. So this N that I'm using here for neutron, there's also N which means the number of the orbit. So for instance, this is the first orbit. So N, I'm going to call it capital N equals 1. And here, this is the second shell, equals 2. And N, the third shell here, equals 3. Those are the electron shells. Okay. So, the periodic table is really just an absolutely brilliant um, invention by Mendeleev, who used it to characterize matter and through the characterization and the placement in the periodic table, you can know, among other things, how many protons, neutrons, and electrons an atom has. And from that, you can also tell a bunch of other properties, like its reactivity, whether it's likely to gain or lose an electron, how it behaves in interactions with any other given molecule, given the other, given the other elements placed on the periodic table. And here's the periodic table. Review again. So it's called periodic table. The columns are the groups and the rows are the periods. This is a nicely color-coded periodic table where the colors essentially group like elements together. Like elements in terms of how they react to things or whether they do not like to react to things at all. For instance, in the last column of the periodic table, here, we have helium, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, radon, and something I can't pronounce. But, <laughs> but uh, those are the noble gases. It means they are inert. They do not really, they're in very stable configurations, and they do not interact with other uh, atoms, because they have no propensity to gain or lose electrons. So this is really important to understanding color. Remember I talked about those 15 causes of color. I said there's something called ligand band effects. Well, that comes in when you talk about certain kinds of metals. Um, basically, the blue, light blue, are the transition metals. When you have semiconductors, when you have certain types of metals and certain types of minerals. So we'll talk about this a little bit more in detail. But for now, all you need to remember with respect to color is that the periodic table is grouped by sort of the likeness or sameness of elements and how they react to other elements. This is how you read it to uh, quickly review that. 
I mean, this is pretty basic. You just remember that the, the atomic symbol is the C. If it's a small letter after that, it denotes the same element. The number on the top is the atomic number. So that's the number of protons and neutrons in the nucleus and the electrons as well that are orbiting it when it's not either a, an ion or an isotope. The rest of this, we're not going to calculate mass numbers and go into details like that. The important number is the atomic number for now at the top. Okay, so chemical reactions. Chemical reaction is just a reference to the changing of the properties of atomic structure. We talked about what an isotope is, which has to do with the weight of an atom when the nucleus itself is altered, so you have different numbers of protons and neutrons. It's basically chemically the same as the original element itself, but again, its nucleus is altered and the weight is different. Whereas an ion is very different in terms of chemical reactions and how it reacts. Because the original element that you have is either more or less stable, electrons have sort of orbits they like to occupy. And if you remove some or add some, the atom stability is changed. So after gaining or losing electrons, an element is unbalanced and it has a net positive or a negative charge overall. And typically, in chemical reactions, an atom will want to be neutrally charged. It will want to revert to the most stable configuration possible. So why do they bond? Why do they care? Why do they even, you know, sort of perform this intricate dance? Well, it's an extremely complex question and you can't always predict exactly how atoms will bond, but depending on the complexity of the atoms and molecules that you're dealing with themselves, there are various theories to explain what they are most likely to do in a situation where they encounter another chemical element. The way that we are going to look at that in this course, so there's the simpler elements, Remember the non-metallic ones, all the ones sort of on the either side of the periodic table. The simpler non-metallic elements, their predictive ability to bond is given by something called valence theory. And valence theory just really refers to the outermost electrons of the atom. So in general, Driving chemical reactions, driving color, driving dyes, uh, all those powders that you saw in the video mixed, that were mixed. When we mix those macroscopic levels, what's happening is the molecules on a microscopic level are either being attracted, pushed to seek an electron, or to give up electrons. They want to be in a stable, configuration. They want their outer shells to be filled with the maximum number of electrons possible and that means it's completely stable. It's just a pattern. So there are two types of bonds. 
that we're going to talk about. So remember we said, first of all, to understand the color, we want to look at how the molecules are connected together. Physically, how that happens, uh, it can be more complicated than this, but for our purposes, let's stick to, we have covalent bonds and ionic bonds. And as this illustrates, remember it's the exchange of electrons. Atoms will want either to gain or lose electrons, so they pair up with other atoms that want to do the opposite. So covalent bond is kind of like a touching bond, essentially. It's when a pair of atoms that were separate before, so this is a hydrogen atom with a proton in the nucleus and a neutron, which is not shown, but hydrogen atom and one electron. So now, given, okay, valence theory tells us that for each of these orbitals, there is a certain maximum number of electrons allowed to be in that orbit. It's like a house, it's like maximum occupancy. So each of those levels will be filled to a different degree with a certain number of electrons. But it's the same for all atoms, for all elements. The first level can always have a maximum of two electrons. So what's happening here is the hydrogen only has one. It wants to have two, and having one electron only makes it unstable. It sees another hydrogen atom, so it basically pairs with the hydrogen atom to make a hydrogen molecule where the outer electrons are basically shared. So together they have shared electrons. And this is something we talked about in one of the first lectures. We were talking about the atmosphere. We were talking about air. When we defined molecules, we said molecules are combinations of atoms, but they can be combinations of the same type of atoms. So in this case, this is a hydrogen molecule. It's two hydrogen atoms, so it's diatomic, two hydrogen atoms, um, hydrogen, and this is a covalent bond. The other type of bond we have are ionic bonds, where one sort of atom steals the electron and the other one is left lacking the electron. So in this case, if you're going to have an ionic bond, one sort of dominant atom steals the electron from this hydrogen, this, they become bonded in this way. This is a positive, becomes a positive ion, and this becomes a negative ion, but they're still bonded together. However, they're not sharing orbits. So what does valence have to do with all of this? Remember we said valence has to do with sort of outer electron shells? So the valence is the maximum number of single bonds. When we say single bonds, you know how they are sharing one electron? That's a single bond. You can have double bonds and you can even have triple bonds. And it gets more and more complicated. We're going to deal with single bonds for now. But the maximum number of valence electrons the atom can lose, add, or share to form a bond with other atoms is its valence power or its bonding power. So in that previous example, we had a hydrogen atom. There's got one electron in the outer level. So its valence would be one electron. So its power 
in terms of bonding would be one. It can make at most one bond with another atom. And that's all that valence means. So a bond between atoms is achieved by the valence or outer electrons, um, basically contributing to one is more attractive, so either a covalent or ionic bond will, will form. Okay, and valence electrons are just the outer shell. These participate in the bonding with the atoms. And here is your valence table. The numbers here gives you the maximum electron capacity per shell for each of those shells. So the first one has two, the second one has maximum of eight, the next one has a maximum of 18, although sometimes you see two, eight, eight, 18. It's the same, but it's just a, up to a maximum of 18, and so on. So what does that look like? Here's a helium atom with a nucleus and two electrons orbiting. Very stable. Helium is inert, doesn't react with other things. It's a noble gas. So that's filled. If you're going to go the next shell up, then we basically have, uh, we have oxygen. And the next shell, so n equals 2, n equals 8, n equals 18, etc. So this is just the maximum electron capacity. These notes, it is a lot of text, I realize. I'm saying most of it, but this is for you to help you study and have a reference. So basically, we can know how stable something is based on whether or not it has the maximum number of electrons populating each of those, each of those levels. So a note on this, when we talked about quantum physics a little bit and we talked about the atom and how we got an understanding of the atom and light, uh, we talked about the Bohr model of the atom, Niels Bohr. And so Niels Bohr uh, did develop this sort of planetary model of the atom. But please remember, this is a conceptual model only. In reality, things are much more complicated because the electrons sort of dance around the nucleus in a cloud. Their absolute location is unknown. So what you have in reality is kind of like a probability cloud of locations of where the electrons can be at any given time. So. For our purposes though, I mean, we do not need to get into that. We can use this model. It works very nicely and it gives us an idea why things bond for color purposes. Okay, so here are some more examples. Here we have hydrogen, element number one. Here we have helium, the noble gas element number two. This is inherently unstable, inherently stable. So remember we said a valence electron tells us exactly the number of bonds that the atom can make. It gives us the bonding power. So how many valence electrons do we have here? We have one. So hydrogen, therefore, can form at most one bond with another molecule or another atom. Number of valence electrons here? Valence, meaning extra outer electrons, there are zero because that innermost shell fills up at the two level, which means there are zero extra electrons. So helium, as a result of the valence electrons being zero, cannot bond with anything. 
So it is inert or noble gas. More examples. Uh, you have the first one, beryllium, which is number four on the periodic table. Beryllium, carbon, oxygen. So for each of these, remember we're looking at valence electrons. These are the outermost electrons that would be extra. So remember, in the first shell, n equals one, we had two. In the second shell, n equals two, we had eight. So this is inherently stable, because there's only two there. It wants six more. So the number of valence electrons is two, therefore, that is your valence number. And beryllium can form at most two bonds with other atoms. And so on and so forth. So we've just done valence theory in as pretty much as much detail as we're going to get into valence theory at this point. But remember simply that the number of valence electrons give you the number of bonds the atom is capable of making. You can tell from the valence number or the bonding power how an atom is going to bond. But to tell better what an atom is going to do when we bond, we want to look at another quality of the atom. We want to kind of look at its sort of charge or its electronegativity, its ability to pull or to give, its likeliness basically to pull or give an electron. So that's what we're going to look at next. Uh, again, this was just before, in case you didn't have enough examples in the previous slides, it's a one more example of the valence electrons. Uh, the reason why I'm giving you this example is to show you that, again, depending on the complexity of the atom, we don't always know exactly how it's going to bond. In reality, it can do different things. And so sometimes it may bond, has a, have a valence of three, and other times it has a valence of five. It depends on what the other atom is that it's trying to bond with. That can vary. And how do we know? Well, we look again at the periodic table and the relationships here on the periodic table tell us about likeliness of how which element will bond with which. For more reference on this, and especially on the periodic table, please take a look at these links. This one's really interesting because it's, um, they're interactive online periodic tables. So you can move through and see how the relationships change with those, which is kind of nice. So let's talk about electronegativity. Electronegativity is a really, remember we had, when we were talking about atoms, we had the type of bonds they have, so covalent or ionic, and then how those types are together, how those types are constructed and interacting. And you can tell this by knowing the electronegativity of something, of an atom or an element. To understand which kind of bond will form, whether it's a covalent bond, which one takes an electron from the other one, or an ionic, sorry, covalent bond, they're sharing the outer electrons, or an ionic where one takes a particle, then we need to know electronegativity. So electronegativity, you'll see me refer to it in the future as EN. 
that's electronegativity. And what it is, is simply a measure of the tendency of an atom to attract electrons to itself, to fill up its outer valence shell. So as you would expect, since each atom has a different valence number, a different number of electrons in its outer shell, each atom also has a specific and different electronegativity value. Some things are more electronegative, and some things are less electronegative. To be more electronegative means it will attract an electron. It'll become more and more negative. To be less electronegative means it's more likely to give up an electron. So it'll become, essentially the charge will become, leave, it's throwing away a negative thing, so becoming more positive. And the periodic table, when I was saying you can see those relationships, um, this is just, this illustration is just for you to see with color-coded. The color-coded uh, ranges show you atoms with similar electronegativities. So here, up here we have the most electronegative element, which is fluorine. And down here we have the least electronegative element, the thing that's most likely to give up all of its electrons, and that's francium. It's important to note carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, because carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, these are really the organic compound atoms that form organic molecules. When we're going to talk about dye, when we're talking about pigments in plants, chlorophyll, beta carotene, etc., these are sort of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, uh, largely organic compounds. In terms of how we measure all of this, uh, this the EN scale is uh, the Pauling scale, with the lowest in electronegativity value being that francium that I showed you before, and the value is 0.7, with then the highest electronegativity value being 4, which is fluorine. So all of the elements in the periodic table then, therefore have electronegativity values between 0.7, or extremely likely to give up electrons, and 4, extremely likely to take electrons. Here you can see an actual trend. Don't worry if you cannot read all of these uh, figures on the bottom. Um, I thought it was kind of a nice uh, visual showing of the electronegativity, how it changes. But now that I'm looking at it on the screen, it doesn't look so great. But you don't have to worry about reading these numbers. What you do need to remember, however, is in the periodic table, that element francium, which has the least electromagnetic, uh, electronegativity, is on the bottom left side. And as you move up and to the right in the period, up and to the left, basically, in the periodic table, you have electronegativity increasing this way. Finally, all the way up to a maximum of fluorine, which is around up here, which is 4. So we're going to make a couple more distinctions today. And I do realize that this is kind of a lot of material. We will review it next time. 
But for now, today, I'd just like to throw out some terms and definitions that we'll be talking about later on in the course. And we can review this next time. So if it seems a little bit fast, do not worry about this. We will come back to this. So in terms of covalent bonds, when you're looking at the nature of a bond, when you want to determine how something is bonding, you can have different types of covalent bonds. One type of covalent bond is a pure covalent bond. And that happens when the electronegativity of the two separate atoms that are bonding is exactly the same. So this happens in cases like diatomic hydrogen, diatomic oxygen, diatomic nitrogen. This symbol that I'm using here, this is a delta, it's a, this triangle, simply means change in. So change in delta E N means change in electronegativity. So it's electronegativity of atom 2 minus electronegativity of atom 1, basically. It's how that changes. So a pure covalent bond, again, this is only talking about change in electronegativity, is when there's no change in electronegativity between those two atoms because they both have the same electronegativity value. So delta En will be zero. This is a pure covalent bond. A plain old covalent bond is electrons between, electrons between two electrons? No. So the electrons are shared between two atoms to complete it. It's like the first examples that we saw, and the electronegativities are different of each atom involved. That's just a regular covalent bond. We also um, have, Okay, so this is, this is pretty clear. You just have to remember that the pure is zero, whereas the others have a difference in electronegativity. Here's an example of what a pure covalent bond looks like schematically. Example is H2 or hydrogen, diatomic hydrogen. You see the nucleus A and B with the, with the hydrogen atoms, and each have a color-coded electron. These are both hydrogen, so they both have the same electronegativity and they share the electrons equally. So as you can see, the boundary between atoms, they share those two electrons equally. The number, electronegativity number of hydrogen is 2.2, and therefore the difference, or delta En, from hydrogen atom A to hydrogen atom B, well, it's going to be the same, right? It's just 2.2 minus 2.2. So that's zero. And that is your pure covalent bond or equal sharing. Okay, why? That's, you know, that, that's one thing. What's the other kind of covalent bond? Well, the other kind of covalent bond we have is an example I showed earlier. I showed you water. Water is an example of a polar covalent bond. So what's happening in a polar covalent bond is two atoms with slightly, not greatly, but slightly different electronegativities bond together, that is your polar covalent bond. The resulting bond means that one part of the atom 
in terms of charge, if you could isolate charge, one part of the atom is a little bit more negative and one part of the atom is a little bit more positive. The way to remember that is just think of the word polar. The word polar itself, if you think about magnets, you have a north pole and a south pole. They're oppositely charged. Same thing with the atoms. Um, different ends have different charges and the molecule is said to be polar. Let's show an example of exactly what I mean by that. Example is water. Okay, so we know already from the previous example that hydrogen has an electronegativity value of 2.2. Oxygen is actually 3.44, so they're slightly different. The change in their electronegativities, delta En, will be electronegativity of oxygen minus the electronegativity of hydrogen. So that's 3.44 minus 2.20 is 1.24. So it gives each oxygen and hydrogen bond a polar nature. One end is more negative and one end is more positive. And when you get into looking at these differences in electronegativities, the higher the difference is with these initial values, the more polar or the more polarized the molecule will be. And here's a picture of this. This makes sense. You know, sometimes it doesn't make sense when it's just written out, but this gives you an idea of what is actually going on here. Here's oxygen, eight neutrons, eight protons, eight electrons. You have two hydrogen atoms in a covalent bond, so they're sharing their outer, their valence electrons with the oxygen on either side. And this symbol here, you're getting all the deltas today. This is a Greek letter, delta. It's a small delta, and it means slight change in. Or like that means slight change. So certain ends of this molecule where the hydrogen are will be net positive charge, whereas the big sort of oxygen component of the molecule. In the center of the molecule, if you could wave a wand over it, it would basically show you your polarizing charge. You'd see that in the middle, the molecule is negative. On the outsides, the molecule has a net positive charge. And here's the same thing, just shown in a more uh, sort of less, a less 3D, more schematic way. And all I'm showing here, again, is the black line represents the bonds between the molecules. And there's, they're not sharing equally as in the previous pure covalent example that I showed before. Each one has a net charge. Okay. So next, we talked about our covalent bonds. Now let's just talk about our ionic bonds quickly. So an ionic bond is when one loses and one gains an electron. So again, electronegativity is really important to us to predict what happens when molecules or atoms bond ionically. Most really common 
uh, substance that we have, which is a nice example of an ionic bond, is table salt, NaCl, sodium chloride. So what is happening in, in your sodium chloride is that sodium has one extra, one valence electron, and gives it up to chlorine, which is missing one valence electron to complete that eight in that outer shell. And what's happening here, again, you can make the ionic bond and the sodium gives up the elect electron and the chlorine steals the electron. So that's ionic. So what, how do we put all of this stuff together and where is this taking us? Well, we, had, we talked about a pure covalent bond, about a polar covalent bond, and about ionic bonds. So the only thing distinguishing all of these different kinds of bonds really is this electronegativity measure, which tells us what kind of bond is likely formed and how it's formed. So starting out with electronegativity, this arrow is supposed to represent the change in electronegativity between the two atoms bonding. If the change is not much at all, in fact, if the change is zero, like two hydrogen atoms with the same electronegativity bonding to each other, at zero, you have a pure covalent bond. As you have a slighter change in electronegativity, you have a polar covalent bond. And as you have big changes in electronegativity, so an electron basically being given up and one being inherited, or more than one, you have ionic bonds. One thing to note is in reality, I have this schematic arrow, but the values for electronegativity are not set. They're not definite. There's a kind of a, a fuzzy boundary there. In terms of strength of covalent bonds, we already know what that is. Um, strength of covalent bonds comes from the number of different electrons they share together. The more electrons they share together, usually the stronger the bond. So they can share one up to five. You can have, in this case, a single bond where they're sharing like an outermost orbit, or a double bond where they're sharing the two orbits, or you can have a triple bond, and so on. In this course, we're only going to talk about single and double bounds, bonds. In order to separate these bonds, and this is where the sort of color part and the energy part comes in, how do we break these bonds? How do we move these atoms apart? Well, they have to absorb energy. And they have to actually absorb a lot of energy. They have to absorb photons in the UV spectral range, so shorter wavelengths, higher frequencies than visible light, high energy photons. So you throw a high energy photon into that system, you can break the co covalent bond. Okay, so when that happens, if you had an atom sitting there and the electron is going to absorb an incoming photon, the color that it absorbs, let's say it absorbs blue, it gets absorbed, and you see only, if we're talking about a photon of visible light, you see only the color that is not absorbed. So you'd see the opposite. So if it absorbed all the blue light, 
you'd see the opposite of blue, right? So you'd see yellow. If it absorbed all the red light, you'd see the opposite of that, green, and so on. An example, what, it, what does a single covalent bond look like in a real material substance? Well, diamonds are a great example of, uh, of single covalent bonds. Clear diamonds are, have no color. They form a crystal kind of a lattice. Um, and basically, this is a single covalent bond. When you see different colors in diamonds, when you see sort of yellowy diamonds or blue diamonds, that's due to sort of the uh, impurities in the system. It's sort of foreign atoms being injected in there that have impurities and change the bonding structure. We're going to go into this a little bit later on, but here are the examples of double covalent bonds. A white diamond and a blue diamond and a yellow diamond. This is a yellow diamond and, and this is a basically blue, supposed to be bluish diamond. So that bonding structure change changes from single in the presence of impurities to double. And you can actually see this symbol in here that I've put that looks like an equal sign is just meant to represent double bonds. Instead of one dash connecting them, it's two dashes. So this is a double bond between carbon and nitrogen. This is a double bond between carbon and boron. And those impurities produce these colors. And here's a famous one, a very beautiful, the Hope Diamond which is a famous blue uh, diamond with the boron impurities in this case, giving this diamond this really beautiful deep blue hue. And so there's some more uh, diamond references if you're a diamond fan that you can take a look at at home. One thing I wanted to ask everybody is, we're going to talk a lot about minerals and gemstones. Uh, and the chemistry of color with respect to dyes and pigments. And one thing with respect to the assignments, the other section often of this course has a field trip to the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum. There is a nice gemstones gallery and mineralogical ex permanent exhibit there. Um, I'm debating just because I know that people typically work, it's hard for you to get here. And obviously, we can't take 250 people to the ROM and descend upon them. But I'm just wondering, uh, for the, our last sort of question here, what do you think of this idea of doing an assignment based on going into the ROM gallery and touring the gemstones and the minerals and answering questions based on looking up the write-ups? So let's see if you're interested. Just tell me, be honest, if you think there's no way in hell I'm going to get to the ROM. Okay, that, that's fine, but I just want to know, sort of. Okay, so Tuesdays, by the way, Tuesdays are, oh, there's no way to put this. Tuesdays are free for, for university students. So if we did a Tuesday, I don't know why that's doing that to me. 
What we could potentially do is um, have a certain Tuesday where I would be there between certain times and you could drop in. Or you could go by yourself uh, on a Tuesday and, and do the assignment that way. Right, okay. Yeah, so A is like, yes, yes please, sign me up. B is interested, but scheduling wise, this doesn't work and I can't get downtown or whatever the reason. And C is, um, no, this really doesn't appeal to me, which I understand too, because in university, typically you don't take field trips, right? So. Okay. Uh, give it a couple more seconds. Okay, I'm going to close this down now. Okay, so there's no right answer, but the majority is basically scheduling would be tough. So thank you, that gives me an idea. So it's most likely that I will not ask you to go to the ROM, but we can talk about the exhibit, and maybe show some pictures and some different things. Okay, last thing we're going to do today and we are really getting close to time here. But the last thing we're going to talk about is conjugated bonds. Conjugated bonds are more complex bonds. Um, a lot of these organic molecules, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, have conjugated bonds. They have single bonds, double bonds, triple bonds. It's a complex, complex bond structure. So the more double bonds present in a conjugated bond, the longer the wavelength of light that gets absorbed. So the more red wavelengths get absorbed with more double bonds. So when you have more double bonds, you get essentially, you see a more bluish, bluey, yellowy, sorry, bluey, greeny hue. So this gives rise to the specific color of the molecule itself. What's an example of this? Here we go. We have beta carotene, which is a natural pigment. This is a conjugated bond. You can see just how complicated that structure is. As in the case with the previous slide, the dashes that are single are single bonds. The ones that have two are double bonds. This is a roughly simple conjugated bond. When you get to more and more and more, you can have diagrams, generate diagrams that just look insanely complex. And what happens with beta carotene, so a lot of, it, it really basically absorbs the opposite of the orangey color, so you see the orangey color. It's really an important molecule. It's the reason why you see leaves changing color in the fall. Basically, what's happening is beta-carotene pigment is giving you that yellowy, orange, or red pigment in your eyes. So it is found in many fruits and vegetables. As I showed in the previous example, carrots are the famous one. And it's found in leaves. So when the chlorophyll, basically in the fall, it becomes more visible when the, the green chlorophyll pigment disappears. 
So chlorophyll, what's chlorophyll? Chlorophyll is another pigment. It's another conjugated bond, a complex molecular bond that gives plant or organic matter its green color. Uh, it is a chromophore. So when we say chromophore in this course, we mean something that gives color. Chromo meaning color. So chromophore is any molecule that gives a substance color. And a, a very good example of a chromophore is, sorry, I was not quite getting there. Um, okay, so there's, there's many different kinds of chromophores. A chromophore is anything that gives color. There's something also, the other kind of color-giving molecules are porphyrins. And they're like networks of carbon rings. So this, these are things you find in organic matter. So for instance, in leaves, which are obviously organic, you have por uh, porphyrins. And examples of this are chlorophyll and hemoglobin. And to show you just how complex those structures get in conjugated bonds, here's the sort of schematic diagram for chlorophyll. Notice that it's pretty much all organic molecules. It's hydrogen, it's carbon, uh, there's some methane, there's magnesium. So this is the green photosynthetic pigment that is found that makes plants appear green to us because it absorbs the red color. Okay, so energy states, this is the last thing to touch on, we're finishing up here, but we talked about types of bond and we talked about how those are connected. With energy states, this is something slightly different. A molecule or an atom exists in a certain energy state at all given times. We talked about temperature and color, we talked about temperature as being sort of the amount of energy that any molecule or atom has. Well, molecules and atoms can behave, matter can behave in different ways. There are three ways, three basic energy states, and how those change give us the energy state of matter that we're looking at. So there's the electronic state, a vibrational state, and a rotational state. This one's quite easy. This is what we've been talking about all along, right? This is the give or take, the exchange, or the sharing of electrons. That is the electronic state of a molecule. Whereas the rotational state of a molecule, or did I go vibrational? No, I did vibrational. So the vibrational state of a molecule is essentially the jiggling. And you can kind of correlate that with temperature. It's the movement, how much movement energy the molecules have. And finally, the rotation is molecules will slightly rotate about their sort of central axis. And each of these corresponds to different energy levels. Uh, you can share them. We won't go into this example this time. We will just take a look at vibrational energy state. You can, vibrational, you can think of springs keeping the molecules together. Vibrational energy increases with the springiness increasing in the backward and forward motion. So depending on how springy something is, it'll have more or less vibrational energy. In terms of changing a vibrational state of a molecule, that requires less energy to change it than those other forms. 
So photons of lower energies can be absorbed by the molecules and that can give a big change in vibrational state. Okay, so this is actually why water is blue. Think of water, you've got your oxygen, you've got your hydrogen. Think of springs between it. And what is happening essentially is the blue color is caused by the vibrational energy states that are found in each of the constituent molecules. There's an animation that you can take a look at here, but what essentially we see is the molecules are vibrating in such a way as to absorb the opposite of the blue wavelengths when you have water in a large body, obviously, not in a little glass. But as a large body of water, the yellows and the green yellows are kind of absorbed and you see blue. This I'll go into next time. Rotational energy states is the third one. Molecules can rotate or spin about their axes. And this really, to get a molecule rotating, to spin it up, requires a lot of energy. It requires very, very high energy. And the way that you can remember that, to think about that, is that's what your microwaves are doing. When you're heating up your food, you're adding to the rotational energy state of the atoms and molecules in your food. So this is what's going on inside your microwave. It makes particles rotate around their axes faster and m sort of more vigorously, and the temperature as a result increases and you get hot food. And um, so obviously, you know, think about it. When you put something in the microwave, it doesn't start to glow. At least you hope it doesn't start to glow. Um, so the, the light emitted, the photons emitted are in the, are in the uh, microwave range. They're about like 12 centimeters. And uh, you don't see a visible light because that's not the wavelengths that we see. So changing all these states does different things and uh, that's microwaves. And next time we will pick up where we left off here. So see you Friday.